We're still looking for a good definition of the essential church. Maybe we'll find it today. Welcome to Run With Horses. My name is Norman, and my goal is to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus. The spiritual life is both incredibly simple and potentially the most difficult part of your life. God invites you to live intentionally and on His mission. It's very cool when we can do that together. And doing that together really is talking about the church. So I've been asking for a couple of weeks now, what is the church? Specifically, I've been looking at the idea of minimal or essential ecclesiology. Why is this important? Well, because we need more churches. (laughs) You, You don't start church plants with the finished product most of the time. Now, I do believe there are people who do try to do that, and there are times and places when it does work that way, when a church is able to um, start a new work, maybe in a nearby town or across town, something like that, when they divide their membership between the two and they start with a large number of people who already have a, a base of people who are giving and serving and qualified for leadership and all of those things. So they start from day one with all of the trappings of the church that they came from. That does happen. But if you think about that, what is the logical um, outcome of that? Or what is the, the logical problem with that, I would say? Well, you require a big enough church to be able to have half of its members leave, or at least a big chunk of them, and enough qualified leaders to do everything from day one. And you say, well, you should be training people so that happens. Right. So what were those people doing in the other church where now they're no longer needed? It's well, half their people are gone. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a lot of complicated maneuvering. Is it, does it work? If you have that, I think, yes, <laughs> it works and it, and it should work well. But it takes a lot of time, organization, planning, uh, resources, um, I just a lot of money to do that. And most churches are not in that place most of the time. Now, I can agree with you that it should be an ideal that most of our members are trained, they're equipped for ministry, and they're ready to serve. They're ready to go with a church plant and step right in and do the work of the ministry. The reality is, at least in my experience, is that most churches don't have most of their members equipped to that level. And they, and I've had several um, pastors, associate pastors, members of churches say, you know, we're, we're thinking about church planting. We want to one day, but we have to wait till we're healthier, uh, till we're in a better shape. And, and I think what they mean is, to we're in that place where we can do it that way. I mean, that vision is to reproduce most of, if not all of, what we have now. So what I'm looking at is the idea that you don't start with the finished product. What do you start with? Well, okay, I have a horticulture background. How do you start your garden? Well, you start your garden with a seed. What's that seed? Well, it contains the DNA of the plant as it will be. And it contains all the DNA to produce the mature plant with uh, stems and roots and leaves and eventually more fruit. 
it contains all that in its DNA when you plant it. And it goes through several stages. It's always whatever you plant it. If it's a, a corn plant, it's, it's always corn, but it goes through different stages on its way toward maturity. If you plant an acorn, well, an acorn may become a seedling and then a sapling, eventually a mature oak tree. It's always an acorn. It's always an oak, but it has different stages that it passes through. And it's always, essentially, it's that same DNA. It has the potential to bear fruit. Well, what I'm looking at, when we think about the idea of church planting, what is that minimal or essential ecclesiology? Real quickly, I'll re review some of my thoughts on the definition. So minimal, what I mean is the least viable form or the least possible, uh, what needs to be included to call it a church. So one way that I'll be looking at this down the road is what can you remove from your existing church and it still be a church? And too often we are caught up thinking about the church as the building and structure and programs and all of those things. How many of those can you remove and you still be comfortable calling it a church? The next uh, word we'll look at is essential and kind of start from the other side. If you have nothing else, you must at least have this to call it a church. And that's asking the question from the other side, um, saying, not what can you take away, but if you have nothing else, you know, what, what do you have to have? What are the first couple of things that you need to have to call something a church? Um, ecclesiology is just the doctrine relating to the church. So what is our minimal doctrine relating to the church? The minimal things that we need, how are we going to define church uh, in a way that it's, it's small, adaptable, and flexible? That's, that's what I'm looking for. Church in its most uh, adaptable, flexible form so that we can reproduce it quickly, uh, but completely. That, that's key. We don't, want to we don't want to reproduce something that's less than the church, right? So I've been looking at several definitions over the past couple of weeks, and today I'm actually going to start in the second half of the show putting down some thoughts on paper, which I already have them down, but I'm going to share them with you, that are going to become... Uh, my definition or our definition of the church, this small, minimal definition. So I'm going to be making some decisions about how to define some of these things and how to, eventually, we want to see what does that look like. Might not get there today, but that's where we're going. So I have a question that, particularly from the past few weeks, that hasn't been completely answered in my mind, but I'm starting to lean in a direction. Here's the question. Can you separate what the church is from what the church does? Do you understand the question? You, you say functionally a, a church uh, does something. It has actions. It has purposes that it is fulfilling, and it does these things. How can you separate that from saying a church is? And, and really quickly, uh, I know I've heard it talked about in this way. You know, a church is this group of believers who are baptized and who assemble together. That's what it is. And I, I agree with that. But if you have a group of baptized believers who get together, who don't carry out any of the functions of the church, 
is it fair to still call them a church? And you'd also have to factor in there that you have gatherings of baptized believers who only get together occasionally, maybe a multi-church gathering. Is that still what you'd call the church? And I understand that we'd say that definitely, if you if you think about the idea of a universal church, everyone who's part of, of the church, but we're thinking about a local church, a local uh, expression of the church who is geographically based here, fulfilling uh, their purpose here and now. What do they need to be called the church? And I think, I, I guess I... Going back to that question, can you separate what the church is from what the church does? I don't think you can. The purpose of the church is really important when we define the church. And most of the definitions and comments that I've been looking at in the last couple of weeks, they do include both of those, that the church is this group of people who gather to do this. So they have a specific purpose for meeting. So if a church is not at least attempting to fulfill its purpose, I, there could be groups who we would broadly recognize and they have an, a sign out front and they say they're a church, but they're, they're not or maybe no longer attempting to fulfill their purpose. And I think that's a problem. Um, and ultimately, it's not that we want to argue that they shouldn't use the, the word on the sign, but... We want to say that they're not healthy, and how can we help groups of people who are gathering who need to be on mission? How do we help them get back on mission? Because that's what the church is. This was pretty clearly uh, spelled out by uh, Kevin DeYoung in his article we looked at earlier uh, called Church of Shrinking Definition. He said the, the, the quote I wanted to go back to, he said, the church... To say the church is the people of God is not the same as saying that wherever the people of God are, there you have a church. So just because you have baptized believers who are together doesn't mean that's a church. So the a definition uh, of the church may be the people of God, but for God's people to be gathered, to be a church, they must function in a certain way. And that's why he put it. They must function in a certain way. And I, I think that's true. Uh, the church needs to uh, be on mission. It needs to understand its purpose and be acting in a certain way. It's a certain group of people, called out, baptized, believers, followers of Jesus. They also have to fulfill the purpose of the church. When we look at uh, that idea, the purpose of the church, then one of the definitions we looked at earlier was from the Tampa Underground talking about um, microchurches. And they said, we affirm microchurch as the most basic expression of the church, a very simple ecclesiology. Theirs would be worship, community, and mission. That's their ecclesial minimum. Now, notice that they don't have a, a strong emphasis on uh, the baptized believers or anything like that. It does say when when believers work together in sincere worship. So they have that in their longer form. But their focus is that worship community and mission. What they are emphasizing is this idea that this group of people need to fulfill a certain purpose 
and where you have people who are focused on this purpose, there you have a church. And they would say that purpose is worship, community, and mission. And we'll come back to that because I like the the simplicity of that. And I think a lot of things that I would put into um, my definition or at least thoughts on the church would fit under one of those three. So we'll come back to that. I may use those in my definition. We looked at a, an article called Marks of Essential Ecclesiology. And again, all of these are kind of similar. Churches comprised of believers who gather regularly, and then he gives some of the purposes for discipleship. For me, I think that's going to be really important, that the church is a disciple-making church. Uh, declares the gospel, worships God, serves each other, uh, carries out baptism and communion. So you have here the church, it's the group of, of believers, and their function, their purpose, is again, tied together. I think we we have to come away with a definition that recognizes there's the truth that the Bible says where two or three are gathered together, there I am in your name. It doesn't say where two or three are gathered together, there you have a church. If those two or three are covenanted together to fulfill the purposes of the church, then I think you, you don't have to ask, maybe that is. So uh, when you really get to a minimal, you know, what do you have to have? And that's why we're asking this question. I simple paragraph from the book Rediscover Church um, said a church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom. Again, every definition or, or most of the definitions that I've found are going to say that the church has to be this uh, assembly of believers. They may call them different things, Christians, believers, baptized believers, but they are a group of people who, in every one of these, and we have to maybe look further than the definition to, uh, to really get to the, the details, but would understand this is a group of people who have uh, been saved. They have uh, committed to Christ, to Jesus Christ, as their Savior. So that's what we're talking about when we say believers are Christians. So that's the starting point for Every, every definition of the church, I think that's going to be key. They get together, and so many people in the world today, there's a, a huge discussion over the church assembling. What does the church um, need to do? Assembling does seem to be part of uh, just about every definition of the church you can find, and uh, we'll maybe get there in a minute, uh, the second half of the show, but the Bible does seem to indicate that church, the Christians should get together. So this assembly is really important. Well, we're in the digital age. So how does that impact our thoughts on what it means to assemble? Is a church that meets primarily online is, can you call that an assembly? Is that a gathering? Uh, it's certainly something. And it gets, I totally admit that it gets a little bit complicated. 
particularly when we went back to 2020 and we had so many issues with churches not being able to gather or with certain certain believers who are older and have health risk say, well, they may even still have issues getting together. What does it mean to assemble? Um, and I think we have to be kind and gracious when it comes to people who can't. I, I really do like the ability of the church to stream a service, to have uh, a Facebook group that supports it for people who are unable to attend, people who are traveling, people who are sick. I know in 2020, uh, my whole family was down for a couple of weeks, and it was nice for us to be able to, even though we were all sick and not feeling well, to lay around on the couch and and through this ability to stream, be somewhat part of this church service. Now, we weren't really participating. We were much more observing, but it was still a blessing to us. So I like the ability to do that. The only time I really have a question about it is when people say, that's my main church. We just do online church. And I've heard people say that. They don't make any attempt to get together. And some of it is probably time. Some of it is they don't like uh, all the hassle. I don't know if you want to call it that. (laughs) Having to get ready and go somewhere and you know, find a group of people, and then you have all the mess of relationships, right? It, I totally get why getting together with a church can be uh, stressful and can be difficult, but um, it's also what we're supposed to do. So, you know, to me, this is this is going to be important when we think about the the definition of the church, what a church is, and how we fulfill our purpose. The gathering together is big. Um, One of the things I would come back to as I think about why it's so important that we gather is the one another's. You know, if you look at the one another's throughout the New Testament, and I mean, you know, it says love one another, uh, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, uh, teach one another. You know, you have all these different times when it's talking about this body of believers. So we have that same definition of church where it's a a group of Christians, of people who are following Christ together, and they make up uh, a local church. And they're told, being taught, how do we interact? How do we function as a church? And so then that gathering becomes really, really important. And the one another's gives you this really good picture. I think it's around 55, 56 of them. I love one another's the most often repeated. To do them at all really requires a relationship. To do them well requires a close relationship. And and this is where I come to the online, the streaming-only church, I, I don't see how you can really do this well. Um, 
that's not how we're wired. I think for a time, uh, it can be a good substitute as necessary. But on a weekly basis, yeah, I, I think we need that personal interaction. It's, and we can even see as you look at social media and the difficulty in healthy relationships when you don't have face-to-face relationships. You know, we rely so much as humans on face-to-face interaction. And there's all those little subtle things that you don't, you're not even aware are going on. You know, reading facial expressions and tone of voice and things that you, you really can't communicate at all through text. And even the, the online video does some of that, but it's not quite the same. You do miss some of those cues, social cues. Being in person is a big thing. We need human interaction. That's just as humans, we need that. I think that's one reason why God put this in here for the church, that you know we need to be together as a church. There are a lot of um, studies and different people who are looking at our current social situation in the Western world particularly, but in the world in general. And you look at people who are spending more and more of their time online. And they have online meetings, they have texts and emails and all these things, which as tools are very useful. You know, I, I use all those. I, I find email and texting super valuable for connecting with somebody, for setting up meetings to get together with somebody. But they, they can't replace a sit-down lunch. They can't replace uh, standing and looking somebody in the eye. Um, they can't replace a hug. And that's, you know, a huge part of our relationship is being able to encourage someone. You can encourage someone to a degree through a, a card, a text, uh, an email. And cards are like the old-fashioned way of doing it from a distance, right? You could write a card, and that's encouraging to get that card. But uh, it's not the same as having that person show up with a casserole. <laughs> a Baptist from the South, you know, you, you really care, you show up with a casserole. <laughs> um, it's a different it's a different relationship. It's different to send someone a text and say, hey, I'm thinking about you. Uh, that's a little different than sending them a text and saying, hey, when are you free for coffee? Let's get together. Because that time together is not going to be quick, and it's going to cover ground that you're typically not going to cover through text, through emails, and online. We don't typically have long online meetings with people that are informal. We have a purpose when we do an online meeting. And this is one of the reasons why in-person is so so valuable. In-person, it's much easier to kind of hang around, to uh, have conversation that's you know, it's not what we got together for, but it's in those before and after conversations that we learn about each other, that we begin to develop uh, an understanding of how the other person's wired, maybe of their gifts, certainly of their interest. 
we build the relationship through that so that it's easier to live out the one another's. You just, we need to gather together uh, as a church to function. Uh, and looking at the one another's, I think, points this out very clearly. If you're going to intentionally try to live out the one another's, you're going to have to be part of a, a church, a local church that gets together. So uh, as much as I think there's value in a lot of the online resources, I love listening to uh, podcasts by uh, other people who are teaching or sharing some of their uh, thoughts on some of these things, but that's not the church and it can't replace the church ultimately. Okay, trying to finish up this definition here. The church, Christians who assemble to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King. So this is two things, and I think um, it's not worded this way, but really what you have there is disciple-making. This is the Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20, where you're going and making disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the good news that Jesus is the Christ, and here is what He said your life should look like. Here is how you obey Him. Here is what Jesus said. So it's both of those. It's the gospel and the commands. So it's the the good news of salvation, but it's also uh, Jesus is Lord. He has bought you. He's paid a price. Now we're, we're His. He is, he is King. Uh, both of those ideas, I think, are there. When we think about disciple-making, we think about the gospel and the commands of Christ. And then I really like the way this definition, I said this last week, uh, he says, to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances, to affirm one another as his citizens. So as we carry out baptism and uh, communion, we are uh, affirming each other. Hey, we are part of this heavenly kingdom. We are citizens of heaven, we are followers of Jesus together. And it, that is one of those uniting things. Uh, it's, again, something that's I don't think you can do online. I, you can't do the ordinances separately. Um, and I'm not sure, I haven't looked into it. I'm sure that some churches do try to do things like communion um, online. I, I would not be for that at all. I, I think it's part of our gathering together. Um, I think we should have meals together much more frequently than we do. Um, it's part of our relationship and building that good good relationship. Uh, he goes on and says, to display God's own holiness and love to a unified and diverse people in all the world, following the teaching and example of elders. Now, this last phrase there, following the teaching and example of, el- of elders, um, this is something we're going to come back to, and I'm probably going to punt and say that in my definition of the church, we're going to mention the leadership, but we're going to come back to that one because I have several questions about leadership of the church when we think about a minimal definition, what's really required. Well, Acts chapter 2 really gives us several things about the church. We're going to come back and look at that and consider, okay, now how are we going to define the church? How am I going to define it? And ultimately, I want to ask, what does that look like? So we'll be back in just a few minutes. Hold tight. Welcome back. 
We have a couple of more definitions of the church to look over, and then we're going to start building our own definition of the essential church. Well, I found one um, website, realfaith.com, that had an article called Char- Characteristics of the Church. And they said if you follow the definition of church summarized from Acts 2, which is really close to what I'm going to do later, we can identify several characteristics of the local church. First, it's made up of regenerated believers. So, again, this is uh, a different way of saying the same thing. We're talking about Christians. Now, it does seem to say uh, baptized quite often in, in Acts, that they were baptized and added, added to the church. So, uh, But regenerated believers but transformed by the gospel. Again, this is who they are. His second point is they're organized under qualified and competent leadership. I think this is reading backwards into it a little bit, but I don't argue that there was some kind of of leadership. Um, Any kind of group, if you have more than three or four people together, you are going to require some kind of leadership, whether it's formal or informal. You do have people who have influence, and influence ends up being leadership. So this is an idea I'll come back to later, and it's one of the things that I'm a little bit struggling with as far as where it goes in an essential or minimal definition of the church. Leadership definitely is part of the church. How soon, how much, what does it look like, all those kind of things. I'm less certain about, so we'll come back to that. But for now, uh, there definitely is some kind of leadership, even if it's not necessarily formal leadership as a position in the church in Acts. Now, the uh, the apostles, the people who were with Jesus, and particularly the ones who spent that time with him for that 40 days after his resurrection, Certainly, they had a lot of uh, influence, and their impact was tremendous, and they did exercise a kind of leadership, but it wasn't a position, as far as I can tell. Third, he says the church regularly gathers again, got to get together, and then the purpose for that, to hear God's word and to respond, hear God's word rightly preached and to respond in worship. Uh, so again, that becomes part of the reason why we gather. It's not just a group of people who get together because we like each other and don't want to hang out, but we have a purpose, and God's Word is at the center of that. And I think that clearly, as we go through the New Testament, has to be a big part of our understanding of why we need to gather, that God's Word is important, and then worship. Although um, I'm probably going to vary somewhat from a lot of people when I think about what it means to worship, because I really just don't believe that a lot of what we do together as a church today is worship. I think it's much more praise, and we have teaching and a lot of things that go in there, and any individual could come in with a a heart that is humbled and uh, worshipful, but that in general, that's doesn't seem to be what we're doing. You know, a lot of churches, particularly ones that are are more contemporary, the worship band, if they have that, uh, the the music portion of this service, this gathering, um, tends to be 
somewhat an pull on emotions quite often. The music is intended to point you in a certain in a certain way and guide you. And that's not always bad, but it's also not always worshipful either. Uh, a lot of the songs are, um, they're, they're just praise songs. I, I would say it's, it fits better under the idea of a praise. I think if we called our services praise services, they would be more accurately described than by calling them worship services. Uh, worship, in my understanding, is uh, much more about humility than what we see in our church. I'll, I'll stop there, but definitely to gather God's Word and to respond to it. And actually, to, the response to God's Word should be a humble response where we submit ourselves to God's Word. That is true. I'm just not sure that that's always how we we practice it, but that that's a good goal. <laughs> I certainly think that's what the New, New Testament church in Acts was attempting to do. And number four, he says the church is where the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion are performed regularly. So again, baptism, communion are are part of our church gathering. They're part of the why we gather. Uh, they're part of what we do and how we do it. So certainly really important for the church. And then the last one is the church obeys the Great Commission to evangelize and make disciples. Again, I, I'm really happy that he put that in there. That's Going back to the earlier definition of the gospel and the commands of Jesus, this is the command of Jesus to to carry out the Great Commission, to take the gospel to the ends of the world and, and make disciples. All right. Now we're going to start looking at um, my definition of the essential church. Okay, the essential church or the minimal church. Quick review, what can we remove from our existing church and it still be a church? I'm going to come back in the future and actually think about some of the things that we have, that we do, and kind of question how important they are or what their purpose is. I think that's a good exercise to consider all the things that we do as a church and ask, why do we do this? What is the purpose? Is it fulfilling its purpose? And I'll give you an example, Sunday school. Uh, why do we have Sunday school? We should be able to answer that. And there are some really good things that we do there, uh, or can do there. But what is our uh, intentional purpose? And are we fulfilling our purpose in the way that we're doing it? You can ask the same thing for if you have a Wednesday night or a Thursday night service. Why do you do that? What's the purpose? Uh, what are you hoping to accomplish in that time? And I think we need to be clear about it because that's going to impact what we do and how we do it. Uh, how are you going to accomplish your purpose if you haven't ever figured out what it is? I think too often what is guiding us in the church, and one reason why I think we struggle to see churches started is we're not really clear on our purpose. So we're not intentionally doing very much to accomplish our purpose. Because I would say somewhere under there, as we're thinking about our, our purpose, you're going to come up with, as a group of people who desire to see the gospel go forward and to be disciple makers, 
we recognize there are going to be new groups of people like us in other places. You can call that whatever you want to. I've been using the word term church planting. Uh, it, it really is just an extension of disciple making. This church should be making disciples, and as disciples are growing to maturity, they have a desire to see this great commission carried out everywhere. So some of them have the burden to go over there to see a new group of disciple makers started who are able to reach into a new, maybe it's a subculture. It might not be in a different geographical area. Uh, Many people live in cities where you don't need to leave your city to see the need to start 10 new churches. But it may be a new subculture that your current group is not really equipped or able to effectively impact. So a new group is needed. Well, an intentional disciple maker who focuses on reaching out into that group might be the seed that you need to see that new church started in a new subculture. And the subcultures can be um, based from a different culture, a different language, different lifestyle, uh, different uh, habits and flow of life. You know, one of the, the questions I've had for a long time, particularly in larger cities. Now, if you live rural areas, you're not going to see all of the same needs. You're going to have different needs, right? But in a big city, there are a, a substantial number of people who work third shift jobs consistently, and they work weekends consistently, If most of the churches in that city meet at the same time, what if there's a large group of people who cannot meet at that time? Well, they're not intentionally (laughs) trying not to meet, but because of their job and their situation, it's not easy to change careers or jobs. And I am not somebody that would believe that they need to. Uh, We need a witness at those third shift jobs, at those places where they are going to work weekends. We need gospel witnesses there, which means we as the church need to be able to support mature spiritual growth of the people who work there. Well, how do we do that if our church is unable to function outside of a very traditional model where our, our service is Sunday morning and if you can't come... Uh, we're just going to make you feel guilty. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to actually make any changes to help you. Uh, what I mean by that, well, I mean, that's a subculture. There's a subculture of people in a lot of cities who work third shift jobs or who work uh, weekends consistently. We need uh, a, a body of disciple makers who will understand that and say, we're going to meet when they're available. When is that? Well, I don't know. It depends. Maybe you need several groups. Some may need to meet, you know, at midnight. You may have some need to meet during the week uh, on an evening or uh, afternoon. It depends. But there are groups of people, particularly in larger cities. There are always people awake. There are always people moving. And there's certain people that are going to be difficult to reach if we don't get outside of our normal flow of life. And a, a traditional church struggles to do that. A new church, and particularly, and this is what I'm coming back to, a adaptable, flexible, small, uh, essential church can do that. 
it doesn't have to be large, but it has to understand why it exists, why it's here, and understand you're going to have to be a little bit different to do that. Part of answering that question of what that church looks like is what can we remove from our existing church and it still be a church? That question may need to start with why do we do what we're doing right now? Is that still the best way to do that? I think this is a question we don't often ask. We will, I have um, heard of quite a few churches who will look at what they're doing and say, why do we do it? And they can tell you why they do it. And that's good enough. They just full stop. Well, we do this for this reason. I think it's also valuable to ask, is this still the best, most viable way to accomplish this purpose? There are uh, a lot of technological changes. Uh, There are, um, I think there are options sometimes that we don't think about. We just look at what we've always done. So tradition rules, if that makes sense, not accomplishing the mission. So to be really clear, to have that vision, have that mission firmly in mind and start there rather than start where we are might lead us down a different road. And it's not that you want to constantly question everything, but you you do need to evaluate and debrief what you're doing, at least occasionally, and ask, are we still the right people doing the right thing in the right way to accomplish the right purpose? And the purpose is set down by God, not by us. So we always have a good starting point. And then culture shifts. The way that people flow through society does shift. And we do have to be able to change the Velcro on our church to be able to adapt so that that essential message is influential, so that it connects with people, so that people actually hear it. And I think that's uh, more important than maintaining a tradition. You know, the core doesn't change. The acorn doesn't change. But uh, every tree, you think about that idea of the essential church as being an acorn. Every acorn has the potential to grow a tree, but every tree looks different. Now, you may take a, a pile of, you know, 100 acorns and say, they look almost identical. The trees do not look that way. You're right, the acorns look very, very similar. You have to look very close to see the difference in the acorn. But as the trees grow, particularly when the trees are planted in different areas, you know, some of them are planted, the tree by the water, it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow really well. You plant a, a tree in poor soil, it's not going to look the same. It's still a tree, still came from an acorn. But the trees look different. They're planted in different places. I think that's one of the reasons I like that idea of uh, the acorn as a um, a parable, maybe, of what the church should be. We need that seed that contains the DNA of the church at maturity, but we need to recognize the church at maturity is going to look different depending on where it's planted. So what has to be in that seed, and that <laughs> brings us back to our question, what is the essential church? I'm going to throw in here, you know, I've asked questions like, can you separate what the church is from what the church does? If you have nothing else, you must have at least this and all those kind of questions. And something that's come to mind several times as I've thought about this 
particularly this idea of the essential or the minimal. What do you think about this? I believe if it doesn't apply in all ages, in all cultures, and in the persecuted church, then it can't be considered essential. You understand what I'm saying? Throughout all time, in every culture, language, and in the persecuted church, if in all of those it doesn't apply, it can't, can't work, then it's not essential. It may be good, it may be valuable, but you can't consider it essential if it doesn't work all of the time. Part of that is the foundation is Jesus, it's His church, and He intends for His church to work in every age, in every culture, throughout all time. And certainly, uh, the persecuted church is a big part of that. We're going back to the church in Acts, and one reason why that's such a valuable church to look at in Acts is because it was a persecuted church, and it grew like wildfire. How did it do that? What was the church? You know, if you look at church history, you know, my understanding, and I admit to not being a great historian, but as I've looked into it and read from other people that have looked into it more than me, uh, there weren't a lot of church buildings until like 300 A.D. There were some. I'm not saying there never was a church building. Uh, My understanding is that before that, particularly in places and times of relative peace, if the church was not overtly persecuted, then yes, they would very often find it uh, helpful to have a building of some kind. Now, what I've read leads me to believe and understand that that was typically going to be something like a converted house. You know, they didn't build from scratch a church, but they would take a house and convert it into a, a building that was useful for the church. And there were buildings like that throughout the history before 300 AD. But it was not until uh, it was much safer for the church that they could really begin to build uh, the, the larger buildings and more dedicated space for the church. And Really, in many ways, that's probably marked the the downfall of the church in, in many ways as it begins its long slide toward institutionalism. As institutionalism is is not really easy to propagate, to multiply, and that idea of multiplication is at the heart of what we're trying to talk about here. What does a church look like when it can be multiplied? Well, it needs to be that essential church, that seed and I think it applies in all ages, cultures, and in the persecuted church. It's essential. It's that uh, basic elements. So looking at the church, we've looked at the church as a, a who. It's a group of people, baptized followers of Jesus. There's some kind of leadership. And I, I'm going to come back to this later because I'm curious about it myself. When and how much is required for a, a church to be a church? Do you have to have um, installed leadership. And I think uh, I'm not sure on that. <laughs> Certainly pastors and deacons weren't there right at the start, although pretty quickly they did apply um, effort into deacons to help take care of the church, to do some of that shepherding ministry. But baptized believers, uh, followers of Jesus, some kind of leaders, 
and then they're, they're believers who do what? And then there are several things. Uh, worship. You know, John 4, 24, when Jesus met the woman at the well, he's, he told her in verse 21, um, he said, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So uh, worship is uh, critical. It's one of those key things that we are to do as believers. And here in verse 23, Jesus says, True worshipers, true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Well, certainly the church should be made up of true worshipers. But as I think about what it means to be a true worshiper and this idea of spirit and truth, Romans 12, 1 and 2 always comes to mind. Uh, so I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament, where anytime you think of sacrifice, you should think of the Old Testament and that sacrificial system because it, it shows how important the details are <laughs> and how that... Uh, man cannot do it himself. He has to follow God's instructions. Well, this, Romans 12, 1, tells us that we're to be a living sacrifice and, and that that's our reasonable service, our reasonable act of worship. And that part of that sacrificial life is uh, not being conformed to this world, in verse 2, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Okay, well, this... I think this is a life of worship. If we're a living sacrifice, it's not something we show up and do occasionally. When we think about worship and the church, it's not a time and a place. Um, so to me, even the idea of a worship service, uh, it's just a group of people who are daily humbling themselves, submitting themselves to God, to obedience to His commands, and as part of that, they gather. So gathering together is part of your humble, sacrificial worship of God because it it does take time. It takes some effort. And people, well, I'm busy. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's part of why it's called a sacrifice because you have to give up something, right? Worship uh, is a life devoted to God. You know, I always think it's kind of, to me, this is a progression. You start with one, John 4, uh, 23 and 24, and think about the, the true worshipers and spirit and truth, and then Romans 12, 1, and the, the living sacrifice and how that's a reasonable service or act of worship, and then the humility that's required for both of those leads me right to Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, in verse 5 which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Humility was what allowed Jesus to live a sacrificial life of worship. He was our example. And humility was a key characteristic 
that marked his life. And, and it has to be a key characteristic that marks our life if we are to be uh, humble followers of Jesus. So when we think about worship, uh, again, I, it's, I don't think it's a service. When we think about the church gathering together, we're a group of worshipers who are gathering together. We're not coming to worship. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. I think we come, we get together to praise God, and there, there are aspects of overt worship we, we probably could do, but I don't think we typically do them now. So if we misunderstand worship, we probably misunderstand what it means to get together. Community and fellowship uh, are huge. Acts 2, 42 to 47 says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship with the breaking of bread and in prayers. Just in that verse, you have several things. They continued in the doctrine, so they're learning, they're understanding more about Jesus from the apostles, the people who were with him, and they're fellowshipping together based on this connection to Christ through uh, the teaching of the apostles. And they're breaking bread, so that's part of their fellowship, and then their prayers. Uh, and I think that also is part of their fellowship. So there's public or corporate prayer time. It says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as everyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor, favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In verse 46, is continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Well, when we look at the church, for some people, it literally is a once a week for about an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours. They uh, come late and leave early. And I've consistently been frustrated in churches I've been part of where there are certain people that are always struggling to get there on time that don't have kids or have an excuse. Even if you have kids, that's really not an excuse. And I understand it is occasionally, but if you can consistently be there 10 minutes late, you could consistently start half hour early and be there on time, right? I mean, I understand that's not easy. That's part of the sacrifice, though. I, I've had three kids. I know this works. I had to get there early to set everything up, and I could, could do that. So if you want to, you can do it. Uh, but people who come late because they have no real understanding or desire for the fellowship of the church, and then they leave early, uh, just get out, go home, move on to the rest of their day, and that they've compartmentalized what the church is doing just completely. So they come, they hear a sermon, sing a few songs, and leave and feel encouraged. But I would say those people really are only nominally part of the church and what it's doing. They're not really attached to the mission of the church. And that's that's one of the reasons why we need to look at this, what does it mean to be the church, and how do we encourage people really to be part of the church? Commit to this body. Uh, this is a group of people who are doing something, and that doing something is uh, proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus until it comes. Well, I didn't get as far as I wanted to today, but thanks for joining me again. How is your church doing it, fulfilling its biblical purpose? You know, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me at norman at runwithhorses.net. Check out our Facebook page. Leave a comment. You know, I am I want to be the believer God wants me to be. I want my church to be the church God wants it to be. 
I think you do too. So let's work at it together. Have a great day and keep running.